Jesus, Lamb of God, worthy is your name. That's what we've gathered here this morning to declare. It's the only thing worth declaring in all of the world. And we're grateful for this body of believers that we get to gather together to declare this with. So Jesus, fix our eyes on you. There's nothing else worthy to look at. There's nothing else that won't let us down or leave us out to dry. You indeed are worthy of worship. You're worthy of praise. And we praise you that you've decided to draw us into that, that you've given us a future and a hope, that you've made us your people. And so may that flood our hearts with joy. Amen. Y'all can be seated. Well, maybe at one time or another, you've played a game of checkers with somebody who really knew what they were doing. And you may not find out that they really know what they're doing until you get a few moves in. And, and by that point, you've seen them move their checkers around in what maybe feels like a little bit of a, a random order until all of a sudden, bang, 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 five of your pieces are off the table. And you realize that they weren't making random moves at all, but that they were setting the stage for something that would be marvelous and wonderful and breathtaking. Maybe you've seen somebody set up a long row of dominoes in all kinds of intricate ways, and when they push the first one, they all begin to fall down. Well, that's a little bit what we are going to see here this morning in Revelation 17 and 18. Now, this is a long chunk. This is, I think, the longest chunk that we've read so far in our journey through Revelation. It will, I believe, be the longest one that we read for the rest of this series. And so what I want to do before we jump in and read this lengthy, beautiful passage is I want to set a little bit of a background. I want to give you a couple things to sort of fix your eyes on so that if you happen to get lost as we read through this passage, you can quickly find your place again and you don't miss what's coming. And so what John has been up to up to this point is he has been, like this master checkers player, setting up the board for a breathtaking move that is about to happen here in Revelation 17 and 18. And so we're going to put a few things on the screen. I know particularly those of you at the back won't be able to see it because there's going to be a bunch, but we'll talk through it as we go so you know what's there. And I want you to pay close attention to the shape that you'll see. This will make sense in a minute. So John has been, over the course of these last seven, eight chapters, introducing us to a cast of characters that are going to see all of this through. And so in chapter 12, we met the people of God. We met them in the first couple verses in chapter 12. And shortly after that, we meet the enemy of the people of God. We meet the enemy of God himself, and we meet Satan. He's depicted as a dragon. We then meet one who, a couple who are inspired by this dragon, by, um, by this Satan, the beast and the false prophet we meet in Revelation 13. And then in Revelation 14, we again see the people of God. And this time, these people are depicted as those who've kept themselves pure. Now, remember that. This morning, when we pick up in Revelation 17, we're going to meet this 
Babylon. It's what John calls it. And Babylon is described over and against the people of God who've kept themselves pure. Babylon is described as a prostitute. Now, here's where things begin to move. Here's where you see that the board has been set up because from this point, Revelation 17 onward through the end of the book, you won't meet anybody new. This means you've done the hard work. The board is set. You know all of the cast of characters. From this point forward, we will just see the fate of these characters. And so you've seen the line so far has been kind of a diagonal line like this. We're about to reverse pivot and come back out the other way. Some of you may know what this is called, that it's a chiasm. So next, uh, actually, we will see this this morning as well. We're going to see the fate of Babylon. Babylon the prostitute we will meet today, and we will see Babylon destroyed today. Now, this is good news because this kind of turning point in this tells us what's going to happen for the rest of the book. The fate of Babylon, who's inspired by the beast and the prophet, who are empowered by the dragon, is going to tell us what the fate of the rest of these will be. So if Babylon is destroyed, you can imagine what we meet next in Revelation 19. God's pure people are wed to Christ as his bride. They're glorified in the face of all of this. Then we need to tie up our loose end with the beast and the false prophet, the last half of 19, they are destroyed. When you get to Revelation 20, the dragon, Satan himself, is destroyed. And the last two chapters of Revelation see God finally accomplish all that he has been working to throughout the whole course of the Bible. And God and his people dwell together on earth forever, happily ever after. What Disney has always been chasing, only God can actually Fulfilled. Now, here's what I want you to see. In this shape, that your eye is probably drawn right there to the middle at Babylon. And so I want you, as we read Revelation 17 and 18 this morning, pay close attention to the way that God moves this because this sets the stage. This is where, at this turning point, God begins to hop the opposing checker players quickly and in short succession. And so for the rest of Revelation, John is just going to be tying bows on the strands of stories that he has already started. I say just as if it's simple, but it is gloriously beautiful, hope-giving, and life-sustaining. And so that's what's happening here. If, as we read Revelation 17 and 18, you get lost at any point, keep two things in mind, and this will see you back on the track. We're meeting Babylon and we're seeing Babylon destroyed. If you can keep those two things in your head, even if you get lost for a verse or two, you'll be right back on track with us, and you won't be lost for long. So hopefully you found your place in Revelation 17. I'm going to pick up in verse 1. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns." The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, 
holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled greatly. But the angel said to me, why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction. And the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. This calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. There are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven and it goes to destruction. And the ten horns that you saw are ten kings who have not yet received royal power, but they are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. These are of one mind, and they hand over their power and authority to the beast. They will make war on the lamb, and the lamb will conquer them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those with whom are called and chosen and faithful. And the angel said to me, the waters that you saw where the prostitute is seated are peoples and multitudes and nations and languages. And the ten horns that you saw, they and the beast will hate the prostitute. They will make her desolate and naked and devour her flesh and burn her up with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to carry out his purpose by being of one mind and handing over their royal power to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled." And the woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory. And he called out with a mighty voice, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality, and the kings of the earth have committed immorality with her, and the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Then I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues, for her sins are heaped as high as heaven, and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back as she herself has paid others back, and repay her double for her deeds. Mix a double portion for her in the cup she mixed, as she glorified herself and lived in luxury, so give her a like measure of torment and mourning, since in her heart she says, I sit as a queen, I am no widow, and mourning I shall never see. For this reason, her plagues will come in a single day, death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, 
for mighty is the Lord God who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual immorality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her. When they see the smoke of her burning, they will stand far off in fear of her torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city, Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn for her since no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargo of gold and silver, jewels, pearls, fine linen, purple cloth, silk, scarlet cloth, all kinds of scented woods, all kinds of articles of ivory, all kinds of articles of costly wood, bronze and iron and marble, cinnamon, spice, incense, myrrh, frankincense, wine, oil, fine flour, wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and chariots and slaves. That is human souls. The fruit for which your soul longed has gone from you. And all your delicacies and your splendors are lost to you, never to be found again. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in fine linen, in purple and scarlet, adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour, All this wealth has been laid waste. And all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors, and all whose trade is on the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out, Alas, alas! For the great city where all who had ships at sea grew rich by her wealth. For in a single hour, she has been laid waste. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you, saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians, of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. And the light of the lamp will shine in you no more. And the voice of bridegroom and bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on earth. There was once... A mighty man. He was, in fact, emperor of a large nation. And he loved wealth, the praises of men, and fine clothing. And so on one occasion, he sent messengers out into all the world. And they went looking for him. And they stumbled across a few men who told him that they had a new design 
but they had a new fabric, a new material. Well, excited, the messengers brought these men to the king, and as they explained to him that they had a fabric that was only visible to those who were worthy. You know the story. The emperor, excited at this news, finally able to figure out which of his people are actually worthy to be in the positions he's put them, hires these men right away. They ask for all sorts of fancy, expensive cloth and tools, and they set to work weaving this fabric. Well, anxious to see how it's going, but a little unsettled to go down himself, the emperor sends one of his trusted advisors to go down and see what's going on. The advisor walks down and, to his horror, sees nothing. But knowing that only those who are worthy can see it, he decides to pretend as if he can see it, and he goes back to the emperor and raves about how beautiful this cloth is. Well, finally, the emperor works up enough courage to go see for himself. He walks down and sees the loom. He sees the men working, but he sees no fabric. Well, being a prideful man, he also pretends to see this fabric that is on the loom, and they immediately set about making plans to have a large parade for all of the country to come together and to see the emperor in his new clothes. Well, the emperor is fitted, and as these men put the jacket on him, they describe how light it is and how it is the greatest of fabric. They put the pants on, and they lead him out. And as the emperor makes his way through the town, all of the people are lined up to see him. And they all have the same reaction. We can't admit we don't see anything because then everyone will know that we aren't actually worthy until one little child screams out, he's naked, and the jig is up. Well, friends, that is a picture of Babylon here. You see, Babylon has paraded itself as one who is beautiful. Nations from all around the world have flocked to Babylon, have seen her riches, her beauty, her power, and have thrown their lot in with her. They've hitched their wagon to Babylon, and they have decided to make themselves rich on the back of Babylon. And because everyone is paying attention to this, they are unable to see just how bankrupt empty, and naked Babylon actually is. And in the end, this idol does what idols always do. It does not deliver. You know, there's, there's not much in our world that you can say with certainty. Sometimes the best team wins, and sometimes not. Sometimes you enjoy your job and sometimes you don't. Sometimes your kids are easy and obey and sometimes they don't. Sometimes your car starts and sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes the weatherman, well, he's always wrong. <laughs> sometimes you find retirement enjoyable and well worth the long years you spent working and sometimes you don't. But one thing you can always be sure of Idols destroy those who worship them. The emperor desperately desired praise and fame, 
And he ended up being shamed by the very thing that he sought. And so church, as we reflect on Revelation 17 and 18, real simply, I have three encouragements for you. So if you're taking notes, just three things. First one is this. Christian, beware of shiny things. Right? Don't be like a cat chasing whatever new shiny light happens to appear. Notice the allure that is present in Babylon. She's clothed in fine clothing. She has all the markings of ease and wealth. And not only this, not only is she ridiculously wealthy, but we learn that everyone who ties themselves to her also gets crazy wealthy. She offers pleasure and ease in abundance. Like, how could this not be attractive for those like us who live in a world that's marked by pain, that's marked by suffering, that's marked by things not going the way that you want to. When you see ease and comfort and wealth, how can that not be attractive? In fact, I want you to notice this. Look at verse 6. So, you know, John, the apostle of Jesus, saw Jesus crucified, saw Jesus resurrected, is receiving these, these visions, has been exiled onto an island because he worships Jesus. He's just seen this great prostitute. He's been told in verse 5 that she is the mother of prostitutes. In verse 6, he sees that she is drunk with the blood of saints. And look what he does at the end of verse 6. When he sees her, he himself marvels. It almost looks like in verse 7, the angel has to snap him out of it. And so here's a frightening truth. If even John can see this horrid Babylon, and not the outside that everybody else sees, but the inside, he sees that she's drunk on the wine of the blood of saints. This John who's walked with Jesus for three years, if even he can see this Babylon and marvel, this in fact is a strong lure. And so you and I need to beware. Right? Like shiny things are hard to not be captivated by. But John ties all of this together, I think, in an effort to help us. And so we meet Babylon, and we see Babylon's fate at the same time. So look down at verse 16. You see what happens to the prostitute? The very beast that she was riding, the beast that empowered her, that inspired her, turns on her and destroys her because that's what idols do. And that, in fact, is what happens for Rome, right? Rome has made itself famous, has made a name for itself by having mighty armies, by spreading its border. And in not too terribly long after John's vision, Rome collapses because its armies are too large, its borders are too broad. The thing that it worshipped ends up being its very undoing. And church, things today aren't so different. Any place other than Jesus that promises refuge or safety or security will in fact be your undoing. 
So Christian, beware of shiny things. What appears to be stable is in reality mad. It's an emperor with no clothes. So first, church, beware of shiny things. Second, Christian, hold on tight. Hold on tight. Here's why. These Babylons will continue. Here's what's interesting about how John names this prostitute. In John's day, there was no world power named Babylon. That comes for John from a bygone era. Babylon simply stood for a powerful people arrayed against God. So in Abraham's day, this powerful people was Sodom. In Moses' day, it was Egypt. In King David's day, it was perhaps the Philistines. In Isaiah's day, it was shockingly Jerusalem. In Zedekiah's day, it was Babylon. In Daniel's day, it was Persia. In John's day, it was Rome. Right On and on and on and on. This goes all the way up to today. One empire falls and another takes its place. It's the same story, just has a new name. They're all just Babylons. And until the return of Jesus, the earth will see a parade of Babylons marching through, gathering people, having wealth, being attractive, attempting to lure God's people away from God. The Babylons don't stop. And by the way, this dragon is crafty, right? You remember this. We've seen the beast before, and the beast operated in a really different way than Babylon. The beast worked with power and pressure to try and force Christians to do what they should not do. Babylon works in a really different way. Babylon doesn't work by force. Babylon works by attraction. Babylon displays comfort and ease. Babylon displays beauty and security and wealth. It lures rather than forces. So you see the way that the dragon is working on several different fronts to try and undo the people of God. Over and over, church, your hope will appear will feel flimsy and unstable. It will look like all of the Babylons of the world have more power, more security, and more permanence. Over and over and over again, you will be tempted to trade in what feels flimsy for what appears secure. And over and over and over again, what appears secure will actually be shown to be an emperor with no close. And so regardless of how it feels, regardless of how it looks, regardless of what the people around you think, you indeed have a hope that is secure, that is stable, that cannot be moved. And so the call for you, Christian, is simple. Not easy, but simple. The call is to hold on tight. And the reason that you can do this is because your king is coming. He's not left you out to dry. He's not abandoned you. He's not forgotten what he 
promised. He's not unable. He's not unwilling. He is, in fact, willing. He is able. He is one who is good on his promises, and he will come for his people. And so don't be persuaded by the way things currently look. John writes to a people who are oppressed, who are losing jobs because of their faith, who are, as he is, thrown on an island all by himself. He writes to people who've lost their lives because of their faith in Jesus. And to these people, John says, hold on tight. And I would just suggest, if the hope that John offers to these people in the first century is good enough for them to hold on, you and I, in a land where we're not worried about our lives, we're not worried about losing our jobs because of our faith, Surely, if the hope is good enough for the Christians in Rome in the first century, the hope is good enough for you and me in this century. So hold on tight. Third encouragement for you. The banquet to end all banquets is just around the corner. Right? So you're not holding on just forever. You're holding on because the banquet to end all banquets is around the corner. I want you to notice how quickly this enemy is dispatched. So look back at chapter 17. Look at verse 14. So we've seen this long buildup in Revelation. John's taken a long time to explain to us how great this Babylon is, how mighty and majestic and powerful and rich. In chapter 18, we see all of these kings and traders and merchants and seafarers gather together who relied on Babylon. We've seen the greatness of Babylon. We see in verse 14 of chapter 17 that Babylon is going to make war on the Lamb, and we might be expecting a long kind of series of how this is going to go, and there's going to be some back and forth, and right, you would expect that after seeing how great Babylon is, but notice how quickly this ends. Half a verse. They make war on the Lamb, and this is all John has to say about it. The Lamb will conquer them. Period. Why? Well, he'll do it, John says, because he's the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, and these other people are just pretenders. This, I think, is meant to be a little bit of humor for us. You have this great Babylon who walks and struts around, who people see and marvel, who even John mouth drops and marvels at her greatness, at her grandeur, at her wealth, and she thinks, I'll wage war against the king of kings. And in a few short, simple words, she's dispatched. Like, the image I get in my head is one, when I play with our daughter and I make a stack of Legos real tall, and she walks in, and in one quick swipe, bang, they're scattered. My great tower that took time to build is undone. So Babylon here has been strutting around, has looked beautiful and marvelous and powerful and secure, and the lamb will conquer them. Moving on. It's crazy. And in response to that, which we saw this last week, right? When God sends these plagues, there should be 
remorse and repentance, but instead people dig their heels in. So here Babylon marches off to fight the lamb. He conquers her, period, moving on. And then John, through the rest of chapter 18, lists all of these people who've loved Babylon. And instead of now turning from Babylon, they sit and say, woe is me. My idol has done what idols always do. My idol has left me exposed, naked, and undone. And look at this spin. So all of 18 virtually is depicting all of these kings and these merchants being sad over their God being undone. And without any transition at all, look at verse 20. Rejoice. Oh, heaven, this would almost be shocking, this juxtaposition of mourning and joy, if John hadn't already prepared us for it. Right? Like, what's the pattern that we've seen? Well, so far in Revelation, when the world is rejoicing, when the world is excited, when things are going the way that the world wants, what image do we get of the saints? Well, we see them underneath the altar, crying out for God to do justice for God to make things right. And so the world rejoices, the saints mourn. When God finally does what God says he's going to do, when he brings judgment, when he sets things right, the world mourns because their godless ways have been found to be empty as God told them that they were. And the saints rejoice. You see, these two groups of people want diametrically opposed things. The world wants not God, and the saints want God. And curiously, both groups get exactly what they want, but only one is accompanied with joy. When the world who wants a godless place finally gets its godless reward, the response you see is mourning. And when the saints finally get God on his throne and justice reigning, the saints are filled with rejoicing. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Idolatry, for all of its promises, delivers only pain and misery. God delivers joy and freedom and life. Now, we don't have time to really get into this today. Justin will pick up with it next week. But I want you to notice the response to all of this. So Babylon has been raised up. We've seen Babylon. Then Babylon is wiped away, destroyed. The world mourns. The saints rejoice. And if you look in chapter 19, you notice the next response to this is that the bride... You, me, the church are wedded, married to the Lamb, and a marriage supper feast unlike any other breaks forth. So I just want to read a couple verses for you. So look over at verse 6 of chapter 19. John says, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah. Why? For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. And what should be our response? 
Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And the feast to end all feasts takes off. You know, it was this same Jesus who on a different occasion said that he wouldn't drink any more of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of his Father came. And so we Christians, as we look forward to the day when Jesus returns, when Jesus wipes the floor with all of these Babylons finally and fully, when his presence reigns, when he enacts justice, when his kingdom comes to reign, and he sets up this giant, glorious feast of a banquet for all of his people, this is what you and I are looking forward to. But Jesus hasn't left us without any gifts as we eagerly look forward to that day. See, on that same night when Jesus was betrayed, is when he told his disciples, and by extension you and, and me, that he wouldn't eat again of the fruit of the vine until his kingdom comes, which, good news, tells you his kingdom's coming. This, this gives you sustenance, encouragement, a hope to continue. But this gives us something to look forward to. And so we're going to take part in the Lord's Supper today. So you should be able to find a little cup and a cracker in the pew rack in front of you. Now, hopefully one of the things you see at this point is one of the glories of this bread and this wine that it points us to is the ultimate hope that we have. Jesus ruling, Jesus reigning with his people on earth forever. And so it would only make sense for those of you who are eagerly looking forward to that day to take part in this. So this cup and this bread is only for those of you who love Jesus, worship Jesus, and are looking forward to his return. It's exclusive in that way. It's not like many things exclusive in the sense that if you're not a part of Jesus' people, you can't be. In fact, that's one of the beauties of Jesus is he extends his invitation to all of the earth and calls people from every tribe and tongue and language and nation to come and be a part of his people. And so if you're not trusting in Jesus, if you don't know who Jesus is or if you don't worship him or look forward to his coming, we would love to talk more with you about that. You probably have some people sitting around you who could answer nearly every question you have. Or if you want to talk with myself after, I would love to, but this cup and this bread are only for those of you who are looking forward to the return of your king, to the undoing of Babylon, to the setting right of all things broken, to the forever reign of your king. And so church, this supper points us in two directions. It points us backwards. One of the ways that we look, that our focus is gazed on is we remember our king bloodied and broken for the freedom and the forgiveness of his people. And so this causes us a weird mix of sorrow and joy. Sorrow because our king dies. And joy because he doesn't stay dead and because our sins are paid for. And so we look back as we partake in the Lord's Supper, but we also, praise God, get to look forward because there is coming a day when this same Jesus will return and when his kingdom 
will be forever present when he reigns and when the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray is finally fulfilled. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I'm going to read uh, from Matthew this morning. We, we typically read from 1 Corinthians, but this morning I want to read from Matthew. I'm going to pick up in Matthew 26, verse 26. Uh, before I do, you may go ahead and get your cracker ready. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples, and said, Take, eat, this is my body. Jesus, we praise you. For you, a king unlike any other, gave yourself for your people. You, the innocent one, died so that we, the guilty, might go free. You are glorious. You are worthy. And we praise you for that. Second, we'll take the cup. So you may go ahead and open that up. Continuing on in Matthew 26. And he, Jesus, took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus, we thank you that you've not left us without a hope but that you've promised to bring the kingdom of your Father. That you've promised to lay a banquet for your people to rejoice and praise and gather together singing your praises for all of eternity. And so Jesus, I thank you for that. I pray that you would be with me. I pray that you would be with my friends here this morning. That you would give us courage. That you would give us endurance that we would not find ourselves attracted to the Babylons that parade around pretending to be powerful, mighty, and glorious, but that we would see through them, that we would see them for the temporary shams that they are, that our eyes would be so fixed on you, the only one who is truly glorious, who is truly worthy, who is truly enduring. And in that, we find joy. And so I pray that you would bless us as we gaze on you. Pray that you would bless us as we meditate on your words and as we sing your praises. Make us into your image more and more each day, we pray. Amen.